Super Talk Mississippi media production. You're listening to Sports Talk Mississippi On Demand, presented by Pearl River Resort. Escape to Choctaw, Mississippi and enjoy world-class gaming, the Dancing Rabbit Golf Club, and Geyser Falls Water Park. Escape to Pearl River Resort. To the junction, in the grove, and to the top. This, this is Sports Talk Mississippi. On your radio and in the game. Right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Sports Talk Mississippi with you Tuesday afternoon. Glad to have you along. Streaming online at supertalk.fm, wherever you are in the state of Mississippi or beyond. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Richard Cross and Michael Borky got the other guys off this week. Hey, Dad is on vacation with his family. Rippy is on vacation on the West Coast. We might check in with Rippy at some point this afternoon, see what kind of trouble he is getting into in, uh, in California. But right now, we'll tell you that Sports Talk is brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank, online at mslandbank.com, Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. I was visiting with a, uh, a friend this morning who is a farmer in Clarksdale, and we were talking about Mississippi Land Bank, and I'll not call him by name, but I will tell you what he said. I said, you deal with Mississippi Land Bank, don't you? He goes, they're the best. That's all he needed to say. They're easy to work with. They've been in the land financing and refinancing business for uh, over 100 years. Their headquarters is in Senatobia, Mississippi, but they've got branch locations all across the, uh, the north part of the state of Mississippi. And if you're a farmer that's got needs related to financing, whether it's buying land or uh, getting loans for equipment or refinancing existing loans or production loans, uh, or if you're not a farmer, just looking to buy a piece of recreational property or build a dream home in the country, Mississippi Land Bank can help. My guess is that you will have the same thought, the same reaction that, uh, that my buddy did earlier today, and you will come away from whatever dealings you have with Mississippi Land Bank saying, man, they're the best. It's kind of how we feel about them uh, as well. Borky, what's up on a Tuesday? Oh, not a whole lot. Let me tell you how life evolves, okay? <laughs> From no, no, this is not like not like story time with Uncle Richard. Just, uh, just a little couple of family notes. So yesterday uh, I mentioned was uh, our anniversary, not yours and mine, but mine and my wife Jane's. Thirteen years, and we had celebrated over the weekend. We had gone to uh, gone to Memphis on Friday night after the show, and you know had great time. But it was our anniversary yesterday, so I mentioned to Jane at one point, hey, you want to go to dinner tonight? Nothing like super fancy, just go grab dinner, just us. And she said, well, kids have got this going on and that going on. I said, yeah, no big deal, so we'll just stay home. So we get home, or I get home from the show yesterday afternoon, and Ava Montgomery's got a friend at the house, and I walk in and Francis is in like a unicorn dress costume, and Obi's running around doing whatever he does. So instead of three kids at the house, we've got four at the house. And um, Abe Montgomery's friend ends up spending the night. So I go and pick up a pizza for the kids. Uh, and Jane said, why don't you just go grab some steaks? We'll just have dinner here. So so we did that. And at one point, I look up, and 
she and I are kind of halfway eating dinner. Francis is sitting in my lap, or this is Francis is the baby, or Jane's lap. And um, it was just kind of like, this is where our life is. And it's great, and we wouldn't trade it for anything. I said, Francis, are you a unicorn? No. Are you a mermaid? No. And she looks at me, she goes, I'm the queen. (laughs) Not the princess. I'm the queen calling all the shots. And uh, before we made it to dessert, there was a, an Uno game going on at the dining room table with six of us when it was all said and done. So that is how you celebrate an anniversary 13 years in. Uh, and couldn't have been any more perfect. I will tell you this. You like to fish, don't you? I don't get to do it enough, but yeah, I always love when I do. So we've got, there's a small pond, or big pond, small lake, however you want to classify it, in a park that's like kind of just across the street from our neighborhood. And um, this morning was just gorgeous outside, like 70 degrees, a little bit of a cool breeze, low humidity, and Obi wanted to go fishing. So I went and picked up Chick-fil-A for everybody, and we carried that to the park and, you know, just getting a hook wet for a few minutes. Didn't really have much expectation. And I stayed out with him for, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour, and they were more interested in throwing, like, chicken mini breadcrumbs into the water and watching turtles come up and get them and actually fishing so i went home and had to get shower and get ready and then we get a call obi just caught a fish and then the text messages start coming my boy all by himself with with the help of his little buddy they, they kind of did it together but i think obi had thrown it in and and for the most part reeled it in reels in a about a 14 15 16 inch two pound bass he couldn't wow. have been any more proud Oh man, he was so fired up, and you missed it. So, so when he got home, I, I missed it. I've got pictures, um, but it's almost—I mean, I would have rather been there and seen it, but it's almost cool that he caught it on his own, without dad there to help him reel it in or or whatever. I mean, they they got it they got it in all by themselves. So that was a pretty cool moment earlier. So when he got home, I said, "All right, so you caught a fish. I guess you're done fishing for good now." He said, "No way." So, <laughs> I guess I have an angler now. Man, this is the kind of stuff we I are, can't wait for. I, I hear so much, and especially from Haydad on this show. He's the, the biggest proponent of it. But I have heard so often about, oh, man, your life's over. Like, you're never going to sleep again, all this stuff. And, and maybe this is a bad position because I haven't been there yet, so I don't know what it's like. But hearing those kind of stories, why would I ever complain about not sleeping? When, when when I have that to look forward to here in the very near future. I mean, is your sleep going to be different for the next couple of years or the first couple of years of every child that you have? Of course it is. Frances is a little over two, and she's still sporadic on when she sleeps through the night and when she doesn't. But come on, man. The, the, the experience is that you trade for a little less sleep and a little more money you spend on diapers, whatever. It's uh, It's absolutely worth it absolutely best best thing ever so i'm excited for you and uh, you're getting now you're not going to have those experiences like six months from now you're going to have to wait a little while till you get to that point but it's okay it's worth the wait all, all the stages are fun and unique in their own way i can't wait man and i it, it's it feels so close but yet it's so far away i mean i've still got three months to go well two and a half really but 
Um, I mean, I'll blink and he'll be here, but at the same time, that's so far away. Like, I can grab it, but but not really. Like, I can see it in my sights, and I'm reaching out, and I'm so close, but yet it's not here. So I'm having conflicted emotions. Like, oh, man, <laughs> it's almost here, but also I still got to wait two and a half months. What am I going to do until then? Yeah, just uh, just hang in there and uh, in, enjoy the uh, the wait because I know you're you're ready. Hey, we're glad to have you along for the ride this afternoon. You can text the show Sports Talk Mississippi on the C Spire text line. That number is 601-879-4395. If you want ultra-fast LTE for free, well, switch to a $25 unlimited plan on prepaid by C Spire for two free gigabytes of high-speed data each month and a free Samsung Galaxy J3. Learn more at cspire.com slash prepaid. Again, the C Spire text line, 601-879-4395. 601-879-4395. Much to get to. We're going to talk some uh, Atlanta Braves baseball with Ben Ingram from the Braves Radio Network coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, Bill Bender will join us on the Farm Bureau phone line a little bit later this afternoon as well from the uh, from the Sporting News. He was at ACC Media Days last week, so some general college football stuff with Bill Bender coming up a little bit later. 100 teams in 100 days. We take you to Big 12 country this afternoon. Some of what Pat Fitzgerald has said over the uh, last couple of weeks has uh, grabbed attention. I don't know if it's grabbed attention, Borky, because we're in a slow time and stories that wouldn't necessarily make a ripple uh, seem to be making like a big splash, or if there's something to what Pat Fitzgerald's got to say. Um, we'll get into that a little bit later on. Uh, Zion is now richer as he has signed on with Jordan Brand, part of the Nike family. The um, the official dollars in that contract have not been released, but uh, it was reported that other shoe companies were offering him in the neighborhood of $10 million a, de- uh, a year, and uh, it was not other shoe companies that had a shoe blowout on his foot in a basketball game. So seems like he probably had some good negotiating power with Nike. Yeah, you would think so. And uh, it's so funny. We'll talk about this later. But uh, apparently he's not marketable, right? Yet there's billboards all over New York City today with his face on it. So him going to New Orleans was going to marketable. No, him going to New Orleans was going to make him unmarketable and, and have him just fall into the abyss. Yet he signs a shoe deal with Jordan, which some people expect to be like a top three shoe deal in the NBA already before he plays a game. And, you know, he's got billboards all over the country. So that was yeah, a bunch of crap. It feels like there are some guys that fall into the transcendent category. It doesn't really matter where they put their head on the pillow at night, like what the zip code is. Uh, everybody knows who they are. And if he can deliver on the floor, whew, I mean, the sky is absolutely the limit financially for uh, Zion Williamson. Ben Ingram from the Atlanta Braves Radio Network, and we come back with us on the Farm Bureau phone line just getting started on this Tuesday in the Renaissance Bank studio. Back with you on Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming online at supertalk.fm. All guests appear on the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team, Mississippi Farm Bureau. From the Atlanta Braves Radio Network, he does a little bit of everything. Play-by-play, a bunch of that. 
pregame, postgame, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Ben Ingram. Ben, I still say that people may remember you from your time in Mississippi as the uh, play-by-play voice of the uh, Mississippi Braves, but that was a while ago now. Are you really in your ninth year in Atlanta? Yeah, ninth year, man. First year here was 11 for me. So I was there with the Mississippi Braves from 8 through 10. So uh, it's crazy it's gone so quickly, that's for sure. Yeah, it certainly goes by quickly. I'm curious. I mean, I guess it would be nice to walk into a situation where from day number one, you're working with a team that is a contender and is winning World Series. But is there something to be said for kind of growing with a team that has to go through a rebuilding process and you kind of get to see the excitement level build from the ground level, especially given where the Braves had been for so long, and then they take the step back and now kind of building back to national relevance again? I think so. I think it gives the success more value. I wouldn't say that just for for folks working here day to day. I'd say that for the fan base as well. Uh, it's interesting because when I first took over uh, with the job that I have here, that was back in 2011, they were a good team. 11, 12, 13, those are good teams. They won the division in 13. Mm-hmm. They were a wild card in 12. Had Chipper Jones towards the tail end of his career. But once it went south, it went way south to the point where you're starting to wonder, is this thing ever going to turn back up north again? Because it was, I mean, 14 was bad, 15 was bad, 16 was bad, uh, and, and no real end in sight, and then they had the issue with uh, John Copalella, the general manager who was uh, banned from Major League Baseball with the uh, tampering and, and breaking rules of international free agents and things like that, and it's just, uh, how long are we going to be in the, in the wilderness? But uh, things have picked up really quickly. I thought last year's team was ahead of pace and went, won the division, won 90 games, and this year's team is playing extremely well. So it, it's fun no matter when you jo- joined in, but I feel like being there for 14, 15, 16 that makes this so much more enjoyable, and I think it gives it a lot more value as well. You know, I'm not the biggest math guy in the world, but when you look at the, the standings, you've always got that column on the far right that, that shows what you've de- done over the last 10 games. And Atlanta 60-41, and 41, so basically winning 60% of their games. But it feels like, really, all year long, when you look over in that far right-hand column, they've won 6 out of 10 or they've won 7 out of 10, there just hasn't, at least that I can remember, you're closer to it, you're there on a day-in, day-out basis, it doesn't feel like there's been one of those two-week stretches where you just can't get out of your own way and you drop 7 out of 10 games. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, and I think that's a testament to the consistency of the team. It's, their longest losing streak of the season is four games. They've done that twice, so... Uh, going through a season, hmm. at, at least through 101 games, and not having more than a four-game losing skid, to me, that just shows the consistency. And I think the consistency is more important in this game than it is in any game. Uh, because over the course of 162 games, I mean, it's it, it's a long way. It's a really long haul, and you can't just get hot and rely on that for, for little stretches here and there and, and make it to the end. you got to be consistently good all the way through. And this team has done that through 101 games. And uh, to me, that's—I think—that's given this fan base confidence that they can do it for another 61 and be there in the end, and and see what happens once you get to the postseason because they've not won a postseason series in almost 20 years, which is hard to believe. But that's—that was the case last year, and I think that's even more so the case this year, given their consistency and not staying down too long. Ben, I listen to a bunch of sports media podcasts, and I'm always fascinated with process questions. Now, I kind of understand getting ready for a broadcast, but I did 
like 40 of them last year for, for ESPN, and it was over three different sports. You're locked in to one team, one sport, day in, day out. So I'm kind of curious what your process is as you go to the ballpark, as you get ready, as you build out your scorecard, as you're looking for notes on opposing teams and interesting stuff, new stuff about this Braves team to bring to the table. What's your process for getting ready for games on a day-in, day-out basis? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's one that nobody's asked me before. And, and, and it's funny to think about it like that because what we do is really a soap opera. I mean, it's the same team every single day 162 games, and it becomes almost like a family, which sounds kind of corny to say, but it's the truth because we spend more time with each other than we do our own friends and family. Uh, but as far as getting to the game, I mean, you get into such a regimented process. We're all very, very structured. I think in order to make it in baseball, whether you're a player or a broadcaster or whatever, you have to have a very strict structure and schedule and stick to it and find what works for you. Uh, and I certainly do that as a broadcaster. We have to meet with a manager every single day, usually at 4.15 for a ball game that starts at 7.20. And that's typically the first thing that I do at the ballpark. But when it comes to getting ready for that night's game, that usually starts over coffee for me. I get up, I have breakfast, I have coffee, and that's when I do my pitchers for that night's ball game. I'll look at their guy, I'll look at our guy what our guy's been doing lately, their guy, et cetera, his story, a few uh, nuggets on maybe something that separates that night's starting pitcher from someone else. And that's typically where it starts for me. And, and I, I probably prep more uh, than, than most broadcasters. I'm just a, a nerd when it comes to the preparation part. I really enjoy that uh, almost as much as I enjoy calling the game. Uh, and, but that's where it starts. And then I'll come to the ballpark usually about 3 o'clock uh, for a 7:20 game. Uh, might maybe start filling out my book, my scorebook for that night's game, and then go visit with the manager when the clubhouse opens up. Uh, talk to a guy here or there, and you know you get a room with twenty-five guys. And, and to me, I see that as limitless stories. I mean, there, there are so many things yeah. that you can mine in that clubhouse, and that's just our clubhouse. And then you get to go to the other team's clubhouse, and maybe there's something interesting about a guy that you heard, or a guy's having a hot streak, or has done done something historic. And they're there for you, and that's the coolest thing. You can just walk right up to these guys and ask them about whatever and whatever you gain and, and mine in, in that story you can bring to that night's broadcast. So to me, that's how I make it different. Uh, it, it's, it's the same game every night, uh, you know, nine innings and, and three outs uh, an inning and things like that, but it, it's such a different story to me every night. And I want each broadcast, even though you do 162 of these things, I want it to have its own feel. Uh, and, and for players to be a lot more than just a, a record or an ERA or a batting average, I like to bring uh, individual stories to our to our listeners uh, that can a entertain them and b help them know a lot more about their team uh, and those individuals wearing the uniform that they like. So that that's a part of the of the game that I really enjoy so much. And then uh, eat at six o'clock. First pitch at seven twenty, and then uh, let the good times roll. And for this season, it's been a lot of Rinse good times. Repeat. The first hundred plus games. Two things I'd love to get to, and this has nothing to do with this Braves team. So you talk about going into the opponent's clubhouse. Are there players that are off limits? If you're going into Philly's clubhouse, can you go visit with Bryce Harper? If it's an interleague game against Boston, can you just go find Andrew Benintendi or go find Mookie Betts? Is there any limit to what you can do in the opponent's clubhouse? The only limit you have is that night's starting pitcher. That night's starting pitcher, it's taboo to talk to that guy the day he starts. And he, like For instance, we have Dallas okay. Keiko going tonight. Anything I wanted to ask Dallas, I would have needed to have asked him over the last few days. 
Uh, you can speak with them, obviously, okay. after the ball game. But that's the only guy. And, and if they are there and they're at their locker and they're dressed preferably, then you can go up to them and, and speak with them and, and ask them whatever. <laughs> and, you, you, uh, over the course of a season, most of those guys are pretty receptive to um, to, to whatever you want to ask them. And, and I find that to be really cool. It's, it, it, if a guy is at his locker, that means he's making himself available. There's so many places in clubhouses now, even visiting clubhouses, for these guys to go hide that are off limits for the media. And a lot of times guys will take advantage of that. I mean, our clubhouse is, is like Disney World down there. I mean, they've got uh, so hmm. much stuff down there. Uh, and and that's, it's not just limited to the actual clubhouse where the lockers are. I can go in there, but I can't go to these other places that are off limits. But if a guy's at his locker, you can walk right up to him, ask him whatever you want, and uh, they're usually very receptive to whatever you, whatever you have in mind. That's pretty cool. And then you mentioned family a second ago, and I think you were talking specifically about the people that you work with and the team on a day-in, day-out basis. But the Braves have got a huge radio network, 10 states, nearly 140 stations. Do you feel like there's a family relationship between you and the listeners on a night-in, night-out basis? I hope that they feel that. I feel that way. Uh, and the thing that's so unique about the Braves radio network is is the, the vast region of the country that it covers, like you just mentioned, uh, there's not a there's not a team that has as big of a region of the country as we have. There there are, there are other radio networks that might reach more people. New York, LA, Chicago, just given the, the sheer numbers of uh, population figures sure. in those cities. But as far as the, the the size of the region, I'll hear from people from North Carolina to Louisiana to Florida to wherever that that listen nightly. And, and I know that some people view radio as, as an antiquated medium, but it, for for what we do, I don't see it as that. It might be that for other uh, for other uh, things, music stations, et cetera. But for baseball, I don't think there's quite a marriage between uh, anything else in radio as there is with baseball and radio. And I know our listening audience is, is really large, and I, I like the fact that they're there mostly every night or as often as they can be. Maybe not for nine innings, maybe not even for an entire inning. But to hear the score here and there, they'll catch a story here and there, find out what's happening. A lot of people tuning in, tuning out, and just being a familiar voice and bringing them the team that they love so much. To me, that the team is the stars. I want those guys yep. who are on the field to be the guys that uh, that that are really I'm uh, driving home the point of who they are, what they're doing, so our, our listeners and our fan base know so much more about our guys. Uh, those are the guys that they pull for. So I, I think it is unique, and, and I think it's a little bit more unique than any other team's radio network, just given uh, that region and that size and the fact that it's from the South, and I'm from the South, and, and I enjoy speaking yep. with and chatting with people who, who listen to us pretty regularly. Ben, you're the best. Thank you. Anytime, Richard. Thanks so much, man. If you were wanting to get a bunch of insight on what Dallas Keuchel is going to do tonight, that probably wasn't for you, our, our conversation with Ben Ingram. But I don't know. I was entertained by our conversation because I learned some stuff uh, from Ben there. And, I mean, that was a genuine question that I wasn't sure about the answer to with regard to the access that the home radio broadcasters get in the visiting clubhouse. And I guess I knew that you know some players would occasionally hide from the media if they didn't want to talk. It's pretty fascinating to me, though, that you know if you're if you're at an SEC ballpark during baseball season, and baseball is a little bit different, but generally speaking, you don't go and just like hang out if you're doing radio at the other team's dugout. 
Like David Kellum, I mean, if he, let's say he's met Tim Corbin in the past, he might stop by and speak to Tim Corbin and spend a few minutes with him. But if David Kellum or if I was filling in for him, I'm not going over necessarily to spend 10 minutes with J.J. Bleday and 10 minutes with Austin Martin and you know trying to find stories. It's a little bit different in the way you approach a college broadcast. But for a big league broadcast, they're professionals, and I think that's kind of neat that the visiting locker room is open. And, you know, you do the stuff that you've got to do with your team, and obviously your focus is on the home team. But who do the Braves play tonight? I was looking at that. Just, they've uh, they got Kansas City. Maybe that's not the best example. Uh, let's say the Braves are playing the Mets, and it's in Atlanta, and you know that Noah Syndergaard's pitching tomorrow night or that Jacob deGrom's pitching tomorrow night, and you know you're not going to have access to them on game day, but you got something specifically that you want to ask them about, or you're trying to find a nugget or two to use in the broadcast, that's a pretty neat setup where you can, you know, respectfully go into the, vis- the visitor's locker room and spend some time with those guys as well. It's a pretty cool gig. Do they do that in other sports, I wonder? I mean, I guess it's different if you're, you know, the home radio crew, but I wonder if they have access like that in the NFL, where like on a Friday night, um, I forget his name, uh, Zach Streif that calls the Saints games, can he, you know, on a Friday night, go talk to Tom Brady the day before a game? Do they let them do that, I wonder? Probably not. I, I think baseball's unique. You probably have more of that in the NBA because you're in the building and you've got the formal locker room setting. But I think football's different. Um, you know, you may have some opportunities to jump on a media call or something like that earlier in the week. But if, if, you know, Zach Streif or Michael Borky is the play by play guy for the Saints, I don't think you just get to, uh, wander into the, uh, to the Patriots locker room on game day and talk to whoever you want to just so you can get a nugget. Now, the TV broadcast is a different deal. They will have, actual production meetings the day before. So if the game's on a Sunday, they'll have those on a Saturday with the visiting team where they're able to sit down with a head coach and maybe an offensive or defensive coordinator and then a couple of players. Uh, and that happens in college football as well. Like, uh, let's just say week two, Ole Miss, Arkansas, when the SEC network crew rolls in, they will meet with um, Ole Miss's coaches so it'll be head coach so it'll be matt luke mike mcintyre and uh rich rodriguez and then they can request players as well and so they will do that on friday afternoon sometimes it's different with the visiting team you might go to their hotel on a uh on a friday night but usually with the visiting team you've had some sort of a conference call with the head coach and if you're interested in talking to certain players that's set up in advance so you know, from a mechanic standpoint, a little behind the scenes there for you, and uh, maybe you learned a little bit of uh, something. Ben Ingram's story is cool. You know, the the Braves hired him. He, he's in his ninth season. They hired him to come in and host the pre and post game show. Uh, he did that and did that really well. Started filling in on some spring training games. Occasionally, would get used on the radio on a West Coast trip. But Ben has, although I don't know that it's necessarily entitled has become the lead play-by-play voice on the radio for the Atlanta Braves. And it's just kind of happened. 
and I think this is probably the last season where the title is not also his as well. Uh, you know, Don Sutton has had some health issues. He's not doing as many games. Uh, Jim Powell has been kind of the voice of the Braves for a while. They rotate Joe Simpson through some, but he's not doing as much anymore. A uh, little too much old man yelling at the cloud stuff with, uh, with Joe Simpson. <laughs> and um, you know what? You remember that from a year ago where he was, you know, complaining about guys that hustle and cultural backgrounds and eh, I just didn't play very well. Yeah, so. that's not a not a good look. I was watching a baseball game the other day though and I did notice the the lack the complete lack of hustle across the board. I watched about an hour and a half of a game. And it's like nobody like tried down the base path. If it was an easy ground out, nobody ran it out and there was a couple of instances where, you know, maybe if they were hoofing it a little bit, they could have beat it out. That was kind of Look, I'm only 27. I shouldn't be talking like this, but that was kind of frustrating to watch. I mean, you have to run maybe three times a game. So if you hit a ground ball to the shortstop, just put your head down and run for 90 feet. What what is what are you saving energy wise by being lazy down the base path before you get thrown out? Yeah, <laughs> you're being paid a lot of money. Just run, yeah, run just it run out. 90 because feet. Because even man. at that level, sometimes guys throw it away. You know, you never know when that uh, one time that you hustle is really going to pay off. So, um, Sports Talk Mississippi Ceasefire text line is open to you, 601 879 4395. You can also uh, tweet the show at Sports Talk M I S S. We, uh, we need to pick up the conversation that we had uh, started yesterday. We, we talked about big storylines in college football. We never really got around to the big storylines this year in the NFL. And then kind of looking at those two side by side, and you go, well, is one more compelling than the other? You know, if you are a fan of college football and you don't really care about the NFL, then you're probably going to gravitate to the storylines of college football. If you're a fan of the NFL, if you live in a pro sports town where there's not a big college presence, then you're probably going to gravitate to the NFL storylines. But if you are just kind of down the middle and you like both, you like both, Borky. I mean, you, you like the NFL, you're a big Saints fan, but you also have a huge passion for college football. So when you set the storylines for the two leagues down side by side, I'm interested to know where you fall. Which, which are you more excited about? Which is more compelling? I've wrestled with this a lot since we started talking about it yesterday. I think it's the NFL. I, I just want to be proven wrong about Alabama-Clemson. I think that more than them can win the national championship. I was doing some research last night. By the way, Oregon, just throwing this out there with a future first-round pick at quarterback, have the most experienced roster returning in all of college football. They have more starts Ooh. returning on the offensive line than any other team in college football. Just saying. That might be a sleeper to, to make the playoff and win, but outside, there, there is so much focus on just Alabama and Clemson that even I'm getting kind of fatigued by it, even though I'm one of those people that thinks that, you know, somebody else can beat them too. It's not just them, but that's all you hear about. You turn on ESPN and they talk college football and it's, oh, what do you think about Trevor Lawrence in year two? Oh, what about Tua? Nick Saban, Clemson, and that's all you hear about. And it hasn't really opened up an opportunity to like really get enamored with the other storylines in yeah. college football because of that. And and you've got Pac-12 Media Day. It's not days, it's Media Day tomorrow in Los Angeles. And a lot of the story that's going to come out of there is the importance of the season opener for Oregon 
because you had that conversation a year ago, the importance of the season opener for Washington in terms of perception of the Pac-12, the result of that game against Auburn was going to go a long way toward determining how people viewed the Pac-12. You get the exact same thing this year, Saturday night game, or late Saturday afternoon game, ABC, neutral site, Auburn and Oregon. There are a lot of people that are going to be looking at that and going, okay, well, if Oregon beats Auburn, how does that change our perception of the league? We'll talk a little bit more about that when we uh, come back in the Renaissance Bank studio. I want to mention this. I don't want to dwell on it, but I do want to mention on it because it's it's weighing on me. And I know for a lot of you that are listening, whether you're in North Mississippi, in and around Oxford, or you're in Starkville, another college town, or Hattiesburg, another college town, or you're in Jackson and you're getting news coverage out of this, this story from over the weekend um, about the, the young lady, um, Alexandria Ali Costiel, uh, Costiel, who was murdered over the weekend, is just heartbreaking. And, you know, to say, oh, we extend our condolences, I mean, you want to talk about inadequate. It is the height of inadequacy. But it's so incredibly sad. And, you know, for the, the family of this beautiful young woman, Allie Costiel, and her friends, whether it's her friends here at Ole Miss or her friends back home in St. Louis, and for all the folks that are affected by this, our, our hearts absolutely break for you and well here's to uh some form of peace and god's grace being able to enter into an incredibly difficult situation all right borky we've talked around it for two days what are the biggest storylines going into this season in the nfl i don't know if this is number one but uh, old quarterbacks uh, because so much okay. has been made about Brady and Breeze and Philip Rivers and even Eli Manning, you can throw in there about their age, and can they still hold up? I, I think that at least that's the one I'm watching the most. Because, uh, like last year, for example, over half of Drew Breeze's throws were at or behind the line of scrimmage, so they didn't ask him to to test his arm throwing downfield. But even when they did, you could tell that at times. Uh, Arm strength. He wasn't consistent with his arm strength, especially at the end of last season. So people wondered if it was a, a stamina thing. Is he getting too old for the NFL? So can these old guys hold up, or will it be Pat Mahomes, Jared Goff, Carson Wentz, their time uh, to, to take over as the, the upper tier of NFL quarterbacks? All right, let me ask you this. We kicked around this idea a little bit, and you thought it was asinine when we talked about the possibility of going to an 18-game schedule, but you've got to sit everybody for two games, and, oh, you never want to do that. Well, when you look at the NBA, LeBron takes games off by design. Uh, Steph Curry, they sit him for games. Klay Thompson, they sit him for games. Kawhi Leonard sat that. 20 games this past season and then was perfect in the playoffs, and a lot of people are saying that because he yeah. sat, he was fully rested and ready to go come the postseason and he won a title. And and the term that has gone along with that is a relatively new one. People have been calling it load management. I mean, it's a, not a new concept, but it's kind of a new term that's being used on a pretty regular basis. So what about load management for Drew Brees? 
could, could, could you get behind the idea of if the Saints are going to win a Super Bowl, if the Saints are going to get it to the NFC title game, Drew Brees has got to be at his best and he's got to be at his strongest. And so you pick a game in week four or week seven or week 11 and you go, he's not doing it this week. We're sitting him to take a few extra miles off the tires. That's fascinating, especially because they have a backup that you would think is capable. Even though he didn't look very good in the preseason last year in his limited action, Teddy Bridgewater is a guy that played well in the NFL before that freak knee injury. So if you wanted to go down that road, you had a guy that you you could hand the football to and, and still feel comfortable. If nothing else, they probably could win some games being super conservative. Almost go the Alabama route. Win games by running the football, throwing some underneath screens, and playing good defense. They can do that sometimes this season. Yeah, but season. that's not no. But I'm I'm not talking about a game off. I'm talking about a week off. Like you go into the week knowing that Teddy Bridgewater is going to start, hmm. and Drew Brees is not taking first team reps throughout the week. He's at the facility. He's there for meetings, but there's no physical toll for an entire what ten days between a start on a Sunday and a start two weeks later on a Sunday. It's like you give him an additional open date. That's that's really interesting. I mean, you, 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 you do it in week 17 when you've got a playoff spot locked up because you want to rest guys and there's nothing to be gained. What about doing it in week 7? Or what may- about telling uh, Tom Brady... Tom, you're going to hate this idea because I know the competitor you are and I know you're healthy right now. You're not playing this week. You're not throwing the ball once in practice. You got to know your guy. You got to know his strength and you got to know whether or not he needs the sharpness or the repetitions of week to week to be at his best. And if you think it's going to be a detriment to his production when he comes back from a week off, you can't do it. But if you've got a veteran who you know, could use a week off? Would you consider sitting him a week? Or sitting him a week early and then sitting him a week late? I mean, you got to be looking big picture. Especially you if you've got a playoff spot locked a loss. up, right? I mean, you like late in the season, that they have games at Tennessee, and who knows how good they're going to be. If San Francisco's bad again, you have them late in the season. You go to Tampa in the middle of November. So there are a couple games where... You, you kind of know at least your trajectory and where you stand where you could conceivably do that and still maybe even get a win against a bad team. Yeah. Um, it's at least interesting, if nothing else. See, Spire text line, consecutive starts don't mean anything anymore? Eh, I mean, I get what you're saying. Brett Favre was an Iron Man. Eli Manning was an Iron Man, and then they kind of inexplicably sat Eli Manning. I mean, you, you want to talk about a dumb decision in hindsight? Maybe you thought you were making that decision of stopping Eli Manning's consecutive start street, uh, streak. M- maybe you made that decision with the best intentions. But boy, that one just looked dumb. And it looked like more ineptitude in the way that the Giants were running things. But no, I don't think consecutive start streaks streaks really mean much. I think having your quarterback in a quarterback-driven league 
at his absolute best for a playoff run means way more than how many games in a row he started. One hour in the books, Sports Talk Mississippi, Renaissance Bank Studio. You playing the whole thing? Can if you want me to. Takes a while to build up, right? I cut off the first part, thought it was going to be short enough, but uh, no. You got to cut off a lot of the first part. (laughs) It's like 60 seconds before you get to the big build up. Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming online with you at supertalk.fm. See, we're getting closer. There it is. Richard Cross, Michael Borky with you on this Tuesday afternoon. Teenage Wasteland for you. Bringing you back from the break. Just after 4 o'clock, glad to be with you. C Spire text line is open. 601-879-4395. See, if you've got C Spire, you can do what I just did. My wife sent me a message during the break. She said, are you on a break? And so I call, called her. She said, hang on a second. Hits me up on FaceTime. And Borky, uh, I had one job to do this morning the house and i didn't get it done i was supposed to clean off the back porch blow it off dog hair off the you know the outdoor patio cushions whatnot yeah i didn't get done what i was supposed to get done so uh jane goes i've got this backpack blower thing out how do i crank it a little quick tutorial via facetime and bam she is off and running she was proud of herself too (laughs) What I tell you, see, he has one of those big steel backpack blowers, and uh, you you can't be dainty with trying to crank one of those. She got it going though. I was proud of her. Mama Jane getting it done. It's got some Sports power on that thing, you. man. Yes, it does. I've got one of those. It absolutely does. The um, just with an extension cord. You just plug it into the wall. It's an electric powered one. And yeah. I did the always fun task of cleaning the garage this weekend. And we've been using mm-hmm. it basically as a, I don't know where to put this in the new house, so I'm just going to throw it in the garage for a while. So I finally yeah. got to the point where I wanted to organize it and clean it out. And so I got everything out of the garage and I wanted to uh, you know, use the blower and just get all the dirt and all that crap out of the garage. The home itself should sh- sue its previous owner for neglect. It's just how the things that we are finding, <laughs> it's, it's sad really how it was treated. But So I started blowing the floor. And any part of the walls of the garage that would get hit by the wind, the paint would blow off. So I've got oh goodness. I've got patches all <laughs> over the walls of the garage now where the paint just blew off of the walls of the garage. And it's a little electric. Yeah, what color one, so do you not... call that? Uh it's called sheet rot. <laughs> yeah, like dairy cow. I don't know. Uh yeah. Well, don't feel bad. We've lived in our house for a little over a year now, and uh, Jane parked her car in the garage last week for the very first time. Hey. So I went through a little uh, whole cleaning out the garage thing myself not too terribly long ago. Sports Talk brought to you by Mississippi Land Bank, mslandbank.com. See, sometimes you need a place where you can put stuff. And so maybe you buy a piece of recreational property and you put a shop on it or a barn on it. And then you don't have to worry about your garage being junked up with a bunch of stuff because you can take all your stuff to your shop on the land that you financed with Mississippi Land Bank. See, it all works together. That's the next step for you, Bork. You find a little little piece of property, get a little shop, a little barn on it. Now you got a place to uh, put all your stuff that you don't want at your house, when in reality you probably could throw most of that stuff away if uh, if you're like me. If, yeah, if it's been in a box so. in the garage for a year, um, if it's been 
in a box in the garage or a storage unit for a year, you don't need it. I'm talking to myself here. <laughs> I don't know. You uh, you want to be part of the conversation, you can on the C Spire text line, 601-879-4395. Uh, by the way, I was going to say, yeah, reach out to Mississippi Land Bank. You can find a branch location or the phone number online at mslandbank.com. Good to be with you this afternoon. A bunch to get to. Bill Bender is going to join us in uh, just a little while on the Farm Bureau phone line. But right now, it's time to continue the countdown of 100 teams in 100 days. This day is bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. This day is bananas. 100 teams in 100 days. Okay, ready? Three, two, one. Let's take it to Big 12 country, team number 39 on the countdown of 100 teams in 100 days, the Oklahoma State Cowboys. You go after one that doesn't do the right things. You don't downgrade him because he does everything right and may not play as well on Saturday, and you let us make that decision. That's why I don't read the newspaper, because it's garbage, and the editor that let it come out is garbage attacking an amateur athlete for doing everything right. And then you want to write articles about guys that don't do things right and downgrade them, the ones that do make plays. Are you kidding me? Where are we at in society today? Come after me. I'm a man. I'm 40. I'm not a, I'm not a kid. Write something about... It's our fight song, right? Oh, that's good enough. You realize that was 11 years ago? Unbelievable. Mike Gundy is now 51 years old. In fact, he will be 52 before the football season starts. He was born on August 12, 1967. One of the most unique personalities in college football. He is an offensive innovator. He has, obviously, a mullet that has taken on a life of its own. It sounds as if he has no interest in cutting it anytime soon. And he's won 121 games with 59 losses and has gone 9 and 4 in bowl games. Oklahoma State, 7 and 6 last year, and they lost to Missouri in a bowl game, in the Liberty Bowl. Uh, the year before that, they beat Virginia Tech. They beat they Colorado beat Missouri the year in that before game. that. I'm sorry, they beat Missouri 38 33. You're right. Three straight bowl wins for Oklahoma State since losing to Ole Miss in the uh, the Sugar Bowl on January 1st of 2016 following the 2015 season. So they've beaten Colorado, Virginia Tech, and Missouri in the last three bowl games. Interesting season opener. They go to Corvallis on a Friday night. So August 30th, Oklahoma State is at Oregon State. Then they got McNeese State and Tulsa on the road before they uh, jump into Big 12 play. Justice Hill was the leading rusher on Oklahoma State's team a year ago, had 930 yards and nine touchdowns. He's back. Their starting quarterback, Taylor Cornelius, is back, threw for almost 4,000 yards and 32 touchdowns a year ago. I say he's back, although he is not projected as the starter. What am I missing here? 
Oh, I'm sorry. He moved on. It was the other way around. Justin Hill's gone also. I, I was looking at the uh, the wrong section. So they are expected to start a redshirt freshman this year, Spencer Sanders, at uh, quarterback. Did not play a year ago. And Chuba Hubbard, or Chuba Hubbard, is the um, leading returning rusher at 740 yards on the ground. Okay, whatever. You don't care about that. What do you think of when you think of Oklahoma State football? The paddles. No, it's okay. weird, but everybody on the front row in their stadium, and their stadium is up on the field, by the way. You want to talk about how you build a home field advantage when you, you don't have like a massive 105,000-seat stadium? The room and the space that they have on their sidelines, you could basically like touch the wall and then touch the field. There's no room on their sideline, so their fans are right on top of the field. But everybody on the front row has a big paddle, like a cricket paddle. And they're smacking the wall in front of them to make noise. And you can hear it through the television. And I can't imagine being a player on the bench and then two feet behind you, get 100 people smacking a cricket paddle on the wall right behind you. I don't know why that's the first thing I think of, but that's the first thing I think of. Yeah, they wave the wheat. Right, they they do the sway back and forth thing where they they say they're waving the weed after touchdowns. They got the paddles. It is a tight sideline. Might be the tightest sideline in all of college football. I've never been to a game at Boone Pickens Stadium, but I did a basketball game there this year. The uh, the SEC Big Twelve Challenge weekend in basketball. I had South Carolina at Oklahoma State, and their basketball arena, Gallagher Iba actually is connected to the football stadium. So the the not so it's bowl, it's like a horseshoe. And you've got the bowl in with the suites and then on the end that's got the video board, the the basketball arena and the football stadium are attached together. And so I walked out and looked in and as tight as you think it looks on television, it's almost tighter in person. The distance from the sideline to the first row of the stands you're right, Borky. It is very, very cozy. Oklahoma State famous alums. We we kind of we we kind of discount athletes. So that means no Ricky Fowler, no Barry Sanders. All those are two pretty good ones. How about Garth Brooks? That's pretty strong. And Chris T-Bone Gaines Pickens, as well. Who this... Oh, jeez. <laughs> Garth Brooks, T. Boone Pickens, Anita Hill. Uh, anybody else that just really jumps out? James so Marsden was on Westworld, though. which is a really good show, but I don't know if he moves the needle. Yeah, probably not like Garth. Sports Talk Mississippi. Mississippi. Borky and I were just discussing whether or not there was actually snow at the top of the Rocky Mountains right now. Why well, you got to bring my and stupidity the, to, to live radio? Well, no, we should no, keep it at the no. the, answer, <laughs> the answer is yes and no. So I was like, nah, there's not really snow right now in Colorado, but there is some at the top. And if you like, go to the mountain cams, yeah, like like here at eleven thousand fifty nine feet on the top of Springmire Mountain. Facing to the east, they've got some snow. I don't think you can ski right now, though. I mean, mostly it's just like open trails that look like mountain bike trails. 
That would still be kind of fun. Oh, yeah. I definitely agree with that. Um, Sports Talk Mississippi, glad to have you along. Bill Bender will join us on the Farm Bureau phone line about 15 minutes from right now. Athlon has put out their list, you know, lots and lots and lots of lists, but they have ranked the off-season coaching hires in college football. They picked 35 that they thought were worth ranking, and some of them don't really make a blip on the radar at all. Some are SEC-centric. Derek Ansley, now co-defensive coordinator at Tennessee, uh, so you've got uh, new blood on the, the staff at Tennessee. Um, some other folks from the SEC checking in at number 22 on the list. I'm sorry, let me back up. 23 on the list, Steve Sarkeesian, new offensive coordinator at Alabama. They rank that as the 23rd best offseason coaching hire. Mike McIntyre, new defensive coordinator at Ole Miss, listed at number 20. Here's what they say. Ole Miss has finished 13th or worse in scoring defense in the SEC over the last three seasons. That means either next to last or dead last. So McIntyre's arrival is a critical move for Matt Luke's tenure in Oxford. McIntyre spent the last nine years as a head coach, 16-21 and 21 at San Jose State, 30-44 and 44 at Colorado. And I don't know that those overall numbers really tell the story because he inherited a mess both places, and he got the Colorado job because he got San Jose State to a bowl game. And then they got to the uh, Pac-12 championship game with him, what, two years ago at Colorado. Says the Florida native brings NFL experience, time with the Cowboys and the Jets to Oxford, also called the plays at Duke 2008-2009, and is a previous assistant at Ole Miss. So Mike McIntyre they view as a top 20 hire in the offseason. Pete Golding promoted to defensive coordinator at Alabama. That's listed at number 14. And what's interesting about that is Pete Golding is a guy that Ole Miss made a huge run at. We talked about that with uh, Ryan Brown from Jocks yesterday. Uh, that that was very, very real. Number 12? You're going to like this one, Borky. Phil Longo is offensive coordinator at North Carolina. Uh, that is quite the selection. Uh, Graham Harrell, the former Texas Tech quarterback, is listed as the 11th best offseason hire. He's now the offensive coordinator at Southern Cal. Jim Chaney has been brought in to be the offensive coordinator at Tennessee. Spent the last three years at Georgia. Um, Anybody else from the SEC? Danny Enos at Miami. He was with Nick Saban in Alabama last year. Uh, Manny Diaz able to go out and get Danny Enos, who was, I thought he was a really good play caller for Brett Bielema in the time that he was at Arkansas. You know, they talked about that offense so much and, you know, what they were trying to do. Given what they were trying to do in the SEC, Enos, pretty creative offensive mind. Kendall Bryles, listed at number three, brought in as the offensive coordinator at Florida State. Willie Taggart said, forget about the baggage. i got to have a guy that can call some ball plays. And number two on this list, Rich Rodriguez. Here's what Athlon says about Rich Rodriguez. Brings a wealth of experience and a track record of producing successful offenses to Oxford. West Virginia native's ability to develop quarterbacks in his spread attack 
should bode well for redshirt freshman Matt Corral. After a stint as Glenville State's head coach from 1990 to 96, Rodriguez jumped onto the college football scene with stints as an offensive coordinator at Tulane, Clemson, spent time as the West Virginia head coach. He did more than just spend time there. Really, really successful at West Virginia. And in and in the the grass isn't always greener category. In some ways you can't help but wonder where Rich Rodriguez would be and also where West Virginia would be if he had just decided to stay put, to not take the Michigan job. And then after getting run out at Michigan, going to Arizona, we had some good results and some mixed results. 118 wins as a head coach, though, for Rich Rodriguez at West Virginia, Michigan, and Arizona. And then the number one overall hire of the offseason labeled by Athlon is Alex Grinch at Oklahoma. They say um, Ohio native at Ohio State, previous run at Washington State. Defense was significantly better when Washington State had him as the defensive coordinator. And that turned out to be a really good hire, certainly on paper, for Lincoln Riley, going into his third season as the head coach. And that's another place where Pete Golding's name was mentioned pretty prominently, Borky. Yeah. um, I was kind of surprised he, he didn't end up there, to tell you the truth, especially with the mass exodus at Alabama. But I guess if you can call that defense and look at what has happened with Saban assistance over the years, so maybe it uh, gives you legitimacy. I, I just I, I saw this, and I guess it – and it's just Athlon, right? And they had Phil Longo on there, so how legitimate is a, kind of, is a list like this? But I'm kind of high on the, the ceiling of this Ole Miss team. And I'm not naive to think that – I mean, they're going to have to do a lot of things right, and winning six games would be an accomplishment. I mean, it's going to be tough. They're not going to go beat Alabama again or anything like that. But you have people, especially nationally, there are a lot of talk during media days from other people on Radio Row talking about that Ole Miss team. And one guy even said they'll be lucky to win four games. And I just cannot subscribe to the idea that an offense with a blue-chip quarterback, a wide receiver group, that even though they, they are missing A.J. Brown and D.K. Metcalf and Demarcus Lodge, they may not have an A.J. Brown on that team. They, they don't have another A.J. Brown on that team. But they are too deep in four stars at wide receiver. And they have a 1,000-yard rushing running back returning and a five-star as his backup now. They're inexperienced and young in the offensive line, but they still have talent is what I'm saying. I have a hard time believing that an offense coached by Rich Rodriguez with that kind of talent and then a defense that returns basically everybody that will actually line up correctly in 2019 is going to struggle to win four games. It's not like they are just completely barren of talent. That's not true. No, they don't have A.J. Brown anymore, but it's not like the guy replacing A.J. Brown is some scrub from Nowhereville. It's a team that can go to a bowl game again and actually be kind of competitive because of how much they've upgraded with who's calling plays and who's implementing the scheme. 
And I, I don't buy the idea that they just are completely void of talent. That's just not true. Yeah, depth may be an issue. Sure, especially and up front. I, on the offensive line, I think that's the, the biggest concern. And it's just not a spot where you can sustain injuries. You, this If this Ole Miss team struggles with injuries on the offensive line, that's going to be a recipe for disaster. But if you have one of those years like you did in Hugh Freeze's first year, where you have the same starting five up front for every game you play, that consistency could lead to some success. That's unlikely. I mean, it's very, very rare that you go through a season where you don't sustain some injuries on the offensive line. You just don't want them to be devastating injuries or season-ending injuries. And you hope that you can develop some guys along the way. Um, it, it sounds like a broken record when you're talking about Ole Miss, Borky, but I just continue to beat the drum of the first two weeks of the season are so incredibly important. I talked about that with Matt Luke last week, and he wouldn't quite take the bait. But you could tell that he understood kind of where the question was coming from about the importance of the start to the year. Because I think it it means a lot from a momentum standpoint as well. It's not just about the wins. The wins are the most two important things. If you can get off to a 2-0 start with a win against Memphis and a win against Arkansas, it puts you on the path to the potential for a bowl game. But it also loosens things up and lightens things up with a fan base that is very much on edge. The Ole Miss, Ole Miss fan base, as opposed, I think, in a lot of ways to being like super excited about the start of a new season, it's almost like you're going into it waiting for the next shoe to drop, for the next piece of bad news. And if Ole Miss can get out to a 2-0 start... And then have Southeastern Louisiana coming in, and then Cal coming in. You have a chance to build some momentum, not only on the field, but with your fans as well. Bill Bender will join us next on the Farm Bureau phone line. Talk college football with him in the Renaissance Bank studio. Go to the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team, Mississippi Farm Bureau. Let's go to Ohio and talk with uh, our buddy Bill Bender from the Sporting News. Bill, I was disappointed not to see you last week in Hoover for SEC Media Days, but you told us, uh, I guess it was week before last, that you were going to be in uh, in Charlotte for ACC Media Days. I'm not so sure we didn't all choose poorly and uh, and go to the Big Ten. That that, that seems to be where the uh, most storylines have emanated. The last two years, really. Well, I thought the story between kind of, Morph between the ACC and the SEC, the back and forth between Alabama and Clemson. And, you know, you were there. You probably had a better feel for it for me, but it just seemed like, to me, the way I've kind of put it, I think Clemson's moved on, and Alabama, in some ways, has not. Well, Alabama hasn't had a lot of practice of having to move on from difficult losses, certainly not losses like the one they suffered in the uh, in the championship game. Yeah, and I think that's part of it. And obviously, Nick Saban talked about the coaching changes and what went into that. And, you know, Dylan Moses, there was a lot of the way I put it, you know, Alabama was saying Georgia was better than Clemson. That's not true. Uh, Clemson was saying Notre Dame was tougher than Alabama. That's also not true. So it does add a little spice to a rivalry where most of us are picking that fifth straight year. Yeah, but like you said, I mean, the, the big headline was the things Harbaugh had to say. And, I guess I've always been moderate about him anyway. It didn't really 
make a dent one way or the other with me. Um, let's go to Jim Harbaugh in a second because there there are a couple of different things I want to get into on that front. But you call Alabama Clemson a rivalry, and I think for for very good reason. I mean, you're talking about the last four national championships between those two teams. But it's a different kind of rivalry because it's not conference mates. It's not teams that are scheduled, technically, to meet each other every year. And yet we've got this kind of rivalry that has developed. And you've got the layer of Dabo being an Alabama guy, but now he certainly is a Clemson guy. Can can this thing go on indefinitely? Well, I think that's well, where we're at. and It's a rivalry in the sense, I think this, is the, this media day was the first time where they kind of back and forth a little bit. Like I said, Dylan Moses saying what he said about Georgia. You know, I think uh, a couple Clemson players talked about the gap. And, you know, both teams are confident. And I think that's what's adding to it. Because, yeah, I mean, if I had to guess, they'll probably play this year. After that, we'll see. Um, you know, Clemson's going to be probably the number one team, as, at least right, number one or number two, as long as Trevor Lawrence is there. Uh, Alabama has... 10 guys on our top 50 big board for next year. So it's hard to pick. Like I was telling people, if you want to pick somebody else in the championship game, that's fine. But if it's not Georgia or, or Ohio State, I think you're being a little cute. I was going to ask where you go with that because we were talking with Ryan Brown from uh, Jocks in Birmingham yesterday, and, and they had had this conversation if you say it's not Alabama, it's not Clemson, and it's not Georgia then who is it? So so you think Ohio State, because of the roster that they've got, the only other team with a legitimate chance? Well, I think they've got the talent to do it. I think other teams have the talent to get to the playoff, but once you get there, you've got to win too. Uh, so, you know, I mean, yeah, Oregon could win the Pac-12. Um, Michigan could win the Big Ten. Notre Dame could go 11-1. and I don't think they're going to beat Georgia, though. So LSU could go 11 and 1 and maybe win the division somehow but I don't think they're winning in Tuscaloosa so Oklahoma and Texas could win the Big 12 but when have they shown that they have what it takes up front to win a college football playoff so it really is a short list Richard I, I and I hate to it makes the sport sound boring on some level and I hate to be boring but it's it's just really hard not to pick those two teams Bill, I can't remember if we've gone down this road or not, but when you start talking about college football playoff expansion, and I, I got the, the feeling this year in visiting with Bill Hancock that there are conversations that are going on. In the past, he's been very clear that we're not talking about it. And this year, it was a far more diplomatic, well, all good organizations discuss the future, et cetera, et cetera, which felt like code language for, yes, we're talking about expansion of the college football playoff. So it feels like it could happen. Yeah, I mean, it'll but I don't understand. Yeah. Well, well, no, I was just gonna just. I don't understand the people that beat the drum of we lose the significance of the regular season if we go to an eighteen playoff. I think we lose the significance of the conference championship games because why? Why do that? Um, you know, maybe just go straight to eight from the regular season. Uh, I, that's what I would do. Um, but. What, but what if you what if you go five conference champions the the five power five conference champs, 
you allow one team from the group of five to get an automatic bid into the playoff, not an access bowl, but to the actual 18 playoff, and then you only have two at large spots. You can keep everything the same and nothing is diminished. I would still think about getting rid of divisions. That would be one thing I'd do because the first time in that format, that let's say a seven and six pit team found a way to beat Clemson. People will still say they don't deserve to be there and with the divisions. The other thing that's going to need to happen before we go to eight, and I, you know, this is just speaking between the, the five power conferences, they're all going to need to play the same number of conference games. Uh, the Big Ten's, you know, if they play nine and the SEC plays eight and then we go to eight teams, you know, decent chance just by the math that the SEC could have four or five playoff teams. And I don't think the Big Ten's going to go for that. So once that domino falls, then my ears will be up because I'll be looking for the 18 playoffs not too shortly after. But, Bill, if you guarantee that each of the Power Five conference gets an entrant, then you don't get to that scenario where you've got four or five. If you've only got two at large spots and six of the spots are taken up by the five Power Five champs and then the one group of five highest-ranked team, if there are only two at large spots, I mean, the odds of both of those teams coming from a single conference are really slim, aren't they? Well, that's the thing. I just don't like guaranteeing anybody anything because there will be years where the ACC champ has four losses. You know, Are you going to guarantee a group of five spot to like a nine and three Navy team? I just That's where I'm thinking you do away with the conference championship games. If you would have seeded out, I'm trying to remember exactly what it would have looked like. If you would have seeded out the top eight teams in the regular season after, before the conference championships last year, I think you would have ended up something like, like Alabama, UCF, Clemson, Clemson, Michigan, Georgia, Ohio State, and Oklahoma. Who was the other playoff team last year? They, they, it, it was awesome. It was like, yeah, I'd watch that over what we're getting with watching. Other than Alabama, Georgia, the conference championship weekend was not all that riveting. I mean, you got a Texas Oklahoma rematch and a bunch of other stuff. Like, the Big 12 was depending on Oklahoma to beat Texas in the rematch. So, I think doing sure. away with the conference championships takes away some of that guesswork. I guess I, I guess my thought is you just don't have to deal do away with something that's a pretty cool weekend in the, the conference championship. And I understand the whole you don't want to give it away to a team that goes 9-4, and four, but how often does that really happen? I mean, we, we've had – it hasn't been the same team year after year – but we've had a group of five team that has been really good every year, whether it's UCF in the last two or, let's say, a year where Houston goes crazy or one of those years where Boise State is 12-0 and or 13-1 and mm-hmm. or whatever. And then we, it's not very often that we have a major Power Five team that's 9-4 and four win the league. Well, my point would be, like, in the playoff era, and I think I did the math on this last year, there have been four conference championship games where both teams were winning in out of, I think, 20. That's, that's just, I mean, there's too many games where it's like Ohio State has to win here. Oklahoma has to win here. There haven't been a lot of upsets, like you've said, but it is the, the goal of a conference championship game not to have an upset, or is it to have a heavyweight matchup? And that's what I'm saying. Like, maybe you do away with divisions then. And maybe you get the yeah. two best teams in the SEC that way. I'd be we can keep the conference championship game if you give me that setup. Go away with divisions and the top two teams in each league meet. 
and you just run the risk of having an Ohio State-Michigan matchup that happens in consecutive weeks? Yeah, but I think they would move the schedule around because, I mean, I'll give the Big 12 credit for this. I, as much as I just said, I sound a little hypocritical here, but I think it worked out that they had Texas and Oklahoma go twice because Oklahoma won the rematch, and those were the two best teams in the conference, and it's good for business when you get to top two. I think in the SEC it might create some scheduling arguments um, for those teams that have protected rivalries, but we've been doing that. I mean, if you're going to go to eight teams uh, – I don't. I agree with you. It won't take away from the regular season, but I would say this: that the college football fans of certain schools, you're probably going to lose a little bit more of some of those traditional games because they, they're probably going to have to make some changes to the schedule as well. I think I could live with that. Now, I think most people. I, maybe would. if you're a Tennessee fan, you can't live with not playing Alabama every year. I don't know. Well, Although, the last 12 years, they could live without playing Alabama, at least. Yeah. I was going to say, given the recent results, maybe the folks in Big Orange country would feel differently. Well, we didn't get to Jim Harbaugh. We'll do that another day. He'll uh, he'll <laughs> give us something else to talk about. Bill, always fun. Really appreciate your time. Hey, that was a good segment and a lot of fun. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks so much for having me on. Bill Bender from the Sporting News, one of the really good guys in college football that covers it. And not only a good guy, but a guy that does a really good job covering the game. We're back after this in the Renaissance Make Studio. Five o'clock hour, Tuesday edition, Sports Talk Mississippi. A couple of days away from the Palmer Home for Children Radiothon. That's coming up on Thursday. Get started at 6 in the morning. We'll run 12 hours until we wrap up Sports Talk Mississippi on Thursday afternoon. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Haydad, and Rippy are out on vacation this week, but we are glad to be with you. Ceasefire text lines open 601 879 4395. Ceasefire, customer inspired. Right now, it's time for the college football fix. College football fix is driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Log on to buyfordnow.com. Find out why the best-selling trucks are built Ford Tough and a whole lot more. Like, uh, oh, I don't know, the summer sales event, the hurry-up-and-save sales event that is happening at your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Great savings on your favorite Ford vehicle. You can find out. You can test drive. You might drive one home if you visit your local Mississippi Ford dealer today. We mentioned Pat Fitzgerald earlier today. He is the head football coach at Northwestern. It's the place that he played. It's the only place that he has ever been a head coach. He is highly thought of. But for the second year in a row, he goes off on a little bit of a tangent. Some people are praising Pat Fitzgerald for speaking out as to why attendance is down in college football. Others are saying, no, Pat, you really just don't get it. Borky, let's hear what Pat Fitzgerald had to say at Big Ten Media Days. These things. I think phones, I think technology has been the decline in attendance, number one. I think, you know, watching young people today live like this instead of like that. You know, Stacey and I were out on a date last night, and there was two couples, two groups of couples sitting next to us, and... I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm old. Like, not one of the four couples were talking to each other. They were all on their phones. And it just drove me up to, I literally wanted to be like a dad and go like, give me your phone, talk to each other. (laughs) I mean, this is pathetic. 
So it was really, really pathetic. And I think that's just, it's just changed the way a lot of younger people and younger fans intake is all through technology. And I mean, you watch a concert and everybody's holding their phone up. Like, listen, watch, take it in, create a memory. Because they don't go back and watch the videos. They just want to post it on their social media, which is pathetic because it creates a society of, look at me, isn't my life great? Even though when they go home, they're like, I hate myself, I hate my life, everything's wrong. So I think it's a big cause. I think it's, I think it's the root cause, number one. Um, you know, I think the fans that grew up going and tailgating and the fans that grew up going to the stadiums four hours before the games are getting a little older. And I think the next and, and younger generation of fans are more reliant on technology. They'd rather have 12 TVs set up in their in their TV watching cave than go to a game and experience the pageantry and the tailgating. So I think it's definitely things that we, we need to look at as, as, as a brand, college football. I don't know about you, Borky. I agree with a lot of what Pat Fitzgerald said as societal issues and like interpersonal relationship interaction issues. I do not agree that a reliance on phones and technology is the reason for the decline in attendance in college football. Yeah, it's like he answered the wrong question. He had a great answer. If the question had been, why are people not talking to each other anymore? Boom. Yeah. Nailed it. What's different about recruiting? Well, you know, the kids are different. They're, they're, they're just not as good about, you know, talking to me, looking me in the eye because I think they're so dependent on their phones. Not, well, you know, attendance at games is bad because they're so locked into their phones. That, that doesn't make any sense. Although technology absolutely is yes. a root cause of it, but not that technology. It's the yes. 75-inch television where you can see the players sweating where you you buy one that lasts you a decade for half the cost of season tickets for one for one year. So there's your technology angle. Not that they like phones. And then using the, well, you know, they're on their phone too much and so they don't like tailgating anymore also doesn't make sense because if you're social media obsessed, where better can you get content to pretend like you're happy than at a tailgate hmm. before a football game? Yeah, you can you can selfie Instagram, build stories, Snapchat to until your heart's content in that setting. Um I think there are two root causes for declining attendance. And then a third that really probably is the trump card in all of this. So let's go in reverse order. What's the third? What's the trump card? Either your team wins or it doesn't. Well, but Richard, Alabama, yeah, I know, Alabama fans have gotten bored. But as a general rule, if Ole Miss is winning big, stadium's full. If State's winning big, stadium's full. They don't even have to win big to have the stadium full either. Yeah, but you know what I mean. If they're going eight and be four every year, have... every home game is the stadium is full. Yeah, basically. Obviously, it's not going to be as full when you're playing bad non-conference teams because those are less interesting. So, number one, win. Number two, better scheduling matters. Number three, 
Okay, we'll we'll go technology. The 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 home viewing experience, the TV thing matters. You know, that you've got great televisions and your refrigerator's right there and your restroom's right there and maybe you've got a TV on your back porch and maybe when it gets get cold gets cold, you've got a fireplace or a fire pit or a heater or something like that on your back porch and you just like being at home. That's fine. Let's be real for a second. And 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 I can separate the fact that I don't deal with this issue because when I go to a football game, I'm working. And and so it be it would be real easy for me to say, oh, I'll just go to the game. It is freaking expensive to go to a football game. Borky, you live in Jackson. If you don't want to make a round trip single day venture, then it becomes an expensive proposition for you, right? It is, even if it's just a single day. So my wife and I went to the Ole Miss-Auburn game last year. And okay, what would you pay for tickets? 75 bucks each. Good All right, seat. so you're, you're in $150. You're up one, you're, you're, $150 is the baseline for tickets. And to get into Oxford and back from where I live is a full tank of gas, which is about 55 bucks. All right, so we're up to 205 Had to pay to park $30. 235 and then did you eat while you were in town? Twice before the game, after the game, and had stuff during the game. So we went to the square, um, had like a good lunch because the best time to go to the square on a crowded weekend is when it's game day because there's not as many people in the square. It's kind of nice you can actually sit down. But we had like a we'll call it like a sixty-five dollar meal before the game, and then just something okay. quick on the way out. So uh, about ninety dollars worth of food, not counting the. $8 drink for her and myself in the game and then she had like popcorn or something which was like another 6 bucks during the game. All right, so we'll call that another $25. You have spent $350 on one Saturday. And we we don't you know, we don't have we don't go to the Grove and tailgate. That's not what we went there for. So if you are going to do the tailgating thing, there's more additional cost for you to either pay somebody to set up your stuff the night before or you're somehow financially involved in that. We we didn't we didn't do that part. So we were 350 if bucks you, and we didn't you, do the thing that's most attractive about going to a game there. And then if you want to spend the night, I would say absolute minimum unless you're staying with a friend, you're at 200 bucks. And you probably add at least one if not two more meals to that, so another 100 bucks and all of a sudden you're up to a 5 or 600 dollar weekend. Or more, sometimes significantly more. For some people, that's not a big deal. You either save for it or you've got the disposable income. But, Borky, you and I have talked enough, and and I I think you've been open enough on the air to say that, look, my wife and I just bought a house. I have a good job, but I'm not socking away $10,000 a month for retirement. Um, You have a baby on the way. You have insurance to pay, life bills. So a $500 weekend or a $350 weekend is a pretty significant splurge for you, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's something that you have to save up for and, and make a concerted effort. And that's like the only thing you do for a while. So when 
Pat Fitzgerald, and we'll continue this after the break, I'm sure, talks about how young people aren't going to games anymore. It's not the phones. It's that the young people are priced out of the games because we're the ones that don't have expendable income. We have entry-level jobs or new mortgages or, in my case, soon a new baby to where we don't have that expendable income. And when you keep raising the prices and making things more expensive to go to these games, you price us out of it. So that's why young people aren't showing up. Sports Talk Mississippi. We'll continue this conversation when we continue with you in the Renaissance Bank studio, streaming online at supertalk.fm. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. All right, some of you did not agree with my math. You say that uh, that we undersold it. So we were just kind of walking through a weekend for Borky and got a couple of text messages. Um, one in particular said, two-night motel or hotel minimum at jacked-up prices, if you spend the night, prices are elevated on home football weekends. Here's some of the responses on the uh, the Seaspire text line, 601-879-4395. At Seaspire Repair Centers, they're all about, about making happier experiences for you. That's why they've got one-hour phone repair, cracked screens, busted speakers, system crashes, you name it. They've seen it all, and they fixed it. Any phone, any carrier, Seaspire customer-inspired. You've got phone repair locations uh, from uh, really all over the uh, the state of Mississippi. 20 locations from Oxford to Gulfport for you. All right, so the C Spire text line, Borky, how about these? Um, Donald in Oxford says, Mississippi State and Ole Miss fans have a lot in common in regard to the upcoming season. Apathy. Whew. I hope that's not the case. It may be in some corners, though. Uh, that Thomas can end says, really go quick, to the game. Though. I mean, you can end apathy with a few wins early in the season, and then everybody's all back on board. You're right. Thomas and Greenwood, why not go to the game if you're just going to stare at your phone in the bleachers? Fair enough. Tim and Tupelo says $500-ish for two people if you get a hotel room after the game and food when you include tickets, etc. Uh, Wes in Batesville says the prices we were playing with Three fifty to five hundred dollars. That's just for two people. If you throw kids into the mix, the price goes up. Stan and Ripley says, "Young people, heck, I'm forty eight, and it's hard to spend that much, especially when you've got a fifteen year old daughter and a thirteen year old son. I can't afford to go to games." Um, Brent in Gulfport says, two hundred dollars for a hotel. Where minimum two night stays? I ask him how much he generally spends on a home football weekend, he said $1,250 easily for four people. And that's really unique in college as well. So I I said something about this on Twitter, and I quoted what Pat said, and any mention of declining attendance in college football not mentioning costs is a load of crap. And I think that's the root cause of it. And somebody asked me about the NFL. Well, do they have the same trends? And they are slightly down, but generally speaking, attendance in professional sports is fine. Uh, Major League Baseball has seen some decline, but NBA is fine. The NFL is fine. The difference is how many college football teams play in big cities? Not many. So in the SEC's case, with the exception of Vanderbilt, nobody goes to Vanderbilt games because it's a small private school, so there's no connection. Everybody lives in a, a college town. I mean, Columbia, South Carolina, is that the biggest metro area where the college actually is in the SEC, with the exception of Nashville? Maybe. I mean, with Oxford and Starkville, 
you don't have people that live there that can fill a fourth of the stadium. So you have to come from out of town. But if you're a Cowboys fan and you live in Dallas, the, the team's up the road. I mean, if you look at Jerry World and the fans in the stands, how many of them do you think live in Dallas? The vast majority of them. Well, go to a Mississippi yeah. State game or an Ole Miss game and look in the stands. How many people live in Oxford at that game? Not many. Well, yeah, and, 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 and maybe the Saints would be a great example, right? I mean, you, you do have people from Jackson and Hattiesburg and even Oxford and Starkville and maybe even the occasional Memphis folks that go to most home Saints games. But overwhelmingly, the majority of Saints season ticket holders are New Orleans residents or the surrounding areas. So, yeah, I mean, I I think that's a good point. So the majority of people are coming in from out of town, and you're just asking people to make a really big financial commitment to a product that may or may not be very good. I mean, look at Arkansas's home schedule. They got three home SEC games. <laughs> well, and one of them is in Little Rock, not even in Fayetteville. Oh, that's right. They've got two home. It's, it's Auburn and Mississippi State, right? That's right. Yeah, and they play Portland. And then State they play and... Missouri and Little Rock. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's a disaster. And you're asking people to spend four grand with seat licensing and whatever to sit twenty rows up on the fifty to watch them play Portland State. It's it's unbelievable. And so what they have to do. Instead of complaining about people not showing up, you have to give them a reason to. And so we've had this conversation before. We have it a lot. It doesn't sound like the alcohol thing is going to happen at Ole Miss or Mississippi State this year, but you have to do things beyond that. Like North Carolina, for example, ripped up all of their metal bleachers. Now they have comfortable seats for every person that goes to the game, every single one. Now it dropped the stadium capacity a little bit, but little things like that is what you have to do to give – people a reason to get off of their comfortable recliner with their free bathroom and cheaper food and the ability to access a beer if they want one, you have to give them reasons. And so just keeping, like in Northwestern's case, keeping metal bleachers with bad sight lines in an old stadium to not have a great product, it's a you problem that people aren't showing up. It's not a societal problem. People need to look in the mirror on this thing and make some adjustments or else the trend's only going to get worse. Yeah. Um, bottom line is, prices aren't going down. And if you win, and you have excitement around your program, then people are going to pay for season tickets. Right? I mean, Ole Miss is, what, three years removed from selling 41, 42,000 season tickets? Or whatever the number was. Maybe it was 47, 48, 49,000. But with a couple of down years, the fatigue of the NCAA investigation, uh, fatigue with the former administration, and whether, whether you, however you feel about Ross Bjork, there are a lot of people that didn't like it. And they said, you know what, I'm, I'm out. To me, the thing, Borky, that is so incredibly difficult, and I feel like in some ways I'm contradicting myself because I said if you win, people will come. Ultimately, I think if you win, people will come. But when you lose 
a significant number of fans when they say, you know what, I've had enough, I'm out. It's not easy to get them back. Because once somebody rips off the Band-Aid of, you know what, I'm not going to do it, and then they really enjoy their fall, maybe they pick one or two games to go to, they got an extra 2500 bucks in their pocket that they didn't spend, they got to do something that they enjoyed beyond college football a bunch of weekends that normally they'd be packing up and loading up tailgating supplies and going to Starkville or going to Hattiesburg or going to Oxford or going to Baton Rouge or wherever else, and then they're exhausted when they go back to work on Monday, they have a refreshing weekend in a really nice part of the year once it cools off a little bit. They still get to watch all the games. They pick one or two that they want to go to. Getting that person to come back and say, you know what? I'm in on my family of four at 475 or 500 bucks a pop on season tickets, plus the seat license or the contribution that goes along with the seat, plus the expense of traveling five or six or seven weekends, and that's assuming I don't go to any road games, it's hard to get those people to come back and spend that money again. That's why you try so desperately to hang on even through the difficult times. But my goodness... Once you lose people, it's hard to get them back. The product on the field better be pretty darn compelling if you're going to get the people that you lost to come back. There's some that you're never going to lose, period. It's what they do. It's part of how they identify themselves. They love everything about it. That's how they want to spend their expendable income. It's what they want to do. But I think I would be hard-pressed if I didn't have job responsibilities at games to go every single week. One, because of the expense, and two, because we've got other, other stuff going on. Somebody sent us also a message that said, how about parents with kids that do travel baseball or travel volleyball or travel cheer? that go so many weekends out of the year that you finally get to the point where you could have a weekend at home and you say, I don't want to go fight a crowd. I just want to stay home. All this started with the, the comments that Pat Fitzgerald made. I just don't think there's a simple answer. There, there's not a, oh, you know what, the cell phone and the fact that we can communicate via social media on our cell phones. That's the root cause of declining attendance in college football. I think being in the ticket selling business and the marketing business is more difficult right now everywhere, including Alabama, including Clemson, including Georgia. I think it's more difficult than it has ever been at any point.
Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.